Hi you there, welcome and welcome back to my channel, I'm in. Today, let me share with you the story of the big boss among the Chinese drug traffickers. In one of my earlier videos, I mentioned the drug mastermind Liu Zhaohua and briefly talk about another big shot drug lord, Chen Bingxi. This dude was seriously infamous, dealing with the production, distribution and shipping of a whopping 12.36 tons of crystal meth aka the ice, making bang from selling 108.85 kilograms of heroin and moving over 100 kilograms of heroin. Well, this number alone aren't so impressive to people like me, because I'm knowing nothing about the drugs and everything, right? According to the China National Narcotics Control Commission, the CNC, People outside the US consume around 1 to 2 metric tons of heroin every year. The folks over in the source area consume about 1.5 metric tons per year, give or take. These estimates are based on information shared by the CNC during a meeting back in 2007. While the figures they said were exclude the usage in Canada, and Chen Bingxi alone traded 12 years worth of heroin consumption in one year for the world. So it makes sense why they called it the king of ice. Alright, without further ado, let's go back to the beginning and see for ourselves how this devil legend came to be. <coughs> Chen Bingxi was born in 1956 and his early years were tough. It was a time of great challenges and hardships in China, with events like uh, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. The lives of the Chinese people were marked by poverty, scarcity of basic necessities, and constant struggle. And I wouldn't discuss too much historical details. If you're interested, please check out the historical channels about China or Asian. In a nutshell, it was a time of extreme poverty. Chen Bingxi's family lived into this era, was just your average, run-out-of-the-mill family. So when he was a kid, his mom would often drag him to nearby temples to beg for food. Even the monks at the temples weren't exactly living the high life. But monks being monks, they were full-on compassionate, would lend a hand to these hungry kids who came begging for food from time to time. When Chen Bingxi finally became someone who had everything, he always looked back with gratitude on those awesome monks who had shown kindness to him and the other poor kids during that time. Chen Bingxi had to drop out of junior high because of this extreme poverty. He went back home and started working in farming. But let me tell you, this guy was no ordinary farmer. He was a hustler. From a young age, he was out there doing all sorts of business to make cash. He sold chickens, ducks, pigs, and even dogs. You name it, he sold it. In 1980, Chen Bingxi tied a knot with his wife, who was also from the same village. And his wife was a lively one. Born in 1961, she was five years younger than Chen Bingxi. And gathers she had options when she was with Chen Bingxi, you know, as she was from a wealthier family. 
So she was having quite some admirers, especially some rich folks from nearby villages. You know, they wanted her hand in marriage. The poorests among all, like Romeo and Juliet, their relationship didn't receive the blessing of her family. So their married life wasn't easy. Back in the day, most parts of China, including this place where they lived, were all about having boys and not so much about girls. And this particular region was like the worst at enforcing this one-child policy in China. So they've got their first kid, who is a girl. What would this young and poor couple do? Well, they gave away their daughter to someone else to raise, just so they could keep having babies until they welcomed a boy. I know that sounds horrible, but nothing we can do to this extreme misogyny towards women that happened in the past. Not that it gets much better today in these particular regions, I think. Anyway, they got to give away their daughter because of poverty. Though Chen Bingxi's business seemed to pick up not long after the giveaway. The irony: in the mid 1980s, Chen Bingxi took over the village's hat factory and clothing factory, gradually becoming affluent and amassing his first fortune. As a result, the family moved step by step from a remote and impoverished village to the city. Where they invested in houses and shops, becoming true urbanites. Seizing the opportunities of China's economic reforms, Chen Bingxi started to diversify his investments into various industries. Chen Bingxi was an early pioneer in emerging markets, transitioning from selling ornamental fish in an aquarium to dealing in traditional Chinese medical herbs. His foresight. An innovative approach allowed him to capitalize on the significant profits available in these relatively undeveloped industries at the local level. However, perhaps due to his impoverished childhood, the now wealthy Chen Bingxi was not content. He desired more profits and sought to accumulate greater wealth. So Puning City, which is in the eastern part of Guangdong Province, was like this、um, big trading town for traditional Chinese medical stuff, dated like back in the、um, Ming and Qing dynasties. Well, you know, medicine and drugs are the same, just you know how you use it, right? In the early 1990s, Puning City became a major hub for drug distribution because of its efficient logistics. Chen Bingxi, being a smart businessman, didn't waste much time and jumped right into the drug trade without thinking twice. Contrary to what most people think about this、um, drug distribution spreading from cities to rural areas, it was actually more like drugs encircling cities and moving from rural to urban areas. This trend was particularly evident in the Yunnan and Guangdong provinces in China. In the beginning, Chen Bingxi sold opium, heroin, and meth. Opium had been used for medical purposes for a long time, while meth was originally a drug for weight loss, or so they made it in the U.S. back in the time. One of its early forms, a colorless and transparent crystal, was commonly known as the ice, as we know. 
considering his background in the medical herb industry. Chen Bingxi surprisingly sold drugs by going from one house to another on a bicycle, just like the folks in movies who ride bikes to sell MLM products to every house. This way of selling drugs was very uncommon in these、um, drug-related offenses. You might be wondering why, with drug dealing going on like some、um, MLM styles products hustle. No one thought to drop a tip about this shady salesman. Well, let's talk about the clam vibes in the area where he lived. So this clam setup is all about worshiping ancestors, sticking to family traditions, and having each other's backs. In this system, families team up into this bigger clam squad to handle stuff together, keep those family vibes going, and share. The load of looking out for everyone. People deep into this setup might even think the clan rules supreme over the law. Now our guy Chen Bingxi, being part of this clan crew, probably wasn't bothered by the fact he was dealing in the forbidden stuff. For him, it was more about making some cash with the clan. And if a clan member messed up. The first round of judgment happens in a clan meeting, not some courthouse. I will throw in an example of a crime influenced by this clan system. Now let's loop back to Chen Bingxi's journey. As a rich dude, Chen Bingxi, like many big-time drug bosses, seemed like a pretty nice guy on the surface. When it came to giving back, he dropped a hefty sum to temples and schools. The locals saw him as a big shot do-gooder. Chen Bingxi played it cool, knowing the deal about not drawing too much attention and showing off his wealth. When it came to donations, he wanted to be up there but not front and center. So folks in the village thought Chen Bingxi was all about helping out, thanks to his、um, tough upbringing. But not necessarily rolling in the dust. For Chen Bingxi, being a good person served as both a cover up for his wrongdoings and a way to find inner peace. Well, remember he got help from the monks in his childhood, right? But his admiration for Buddha or Buddhism was primarily based on traditional beliefs rather than a genuine spiritual connection. Hmm, not sure how much sense it made. Basically, this guy was no way a religious. But his strong devotion offered would later play a role in predicting his arrest. Chen Bingxi, when he was riding his bike around selling heroin, the product he got wasn't really first hand. Selling heroin as a third or even fifth or sixth hand products. That's obviously a risky business with meager profits. Luckily, everyone in the region was pretty tight knit and didn't snitch on Chen Bingxi. Eventually, Chen Bingxi ran into this buddy, another local who was already deep into this、um, drug game. With his help, Chen Bingxi quickly set up a well-organized drug network that covered everything from getting the drugs. Handling the money and selling them. Once the extensive network was set up, Chen Bingxi and this buddy politely went their own ways, but had each other's backs. 
What a nice, competitive yet peaceful relationship they have. A key part of drug dealing is cleaning the money, right? Before the turn of the century, there were quite a few drug laws in China, and various regions in China were actually filled with hierarchy of disdain and stereotypes towards each other. Wow, we still have it today. Anyway, for example, drug lords like Chen Bingxi living in coastal areas would mock the ostentatious habits of those inland drug lords, like they were not discreet enough, only obsessed with having a large amount of cash, which would quickly attract attention and consequences. And we could see in some、um, different scenarios, like. When it came to making donations, the inland folks would show up with bags that filled with cash, you know, super huge amount of money. And it was a time that online payment options were available. You know, some folks in these inland places still preferred good old cash, especially when it came to activities like gaming. There was this popular private server for a game called The Legend back in the day. These drug lords, you know, who obviously played this game, would choose ATM machines to make the transactions rather than、um, do it online. And you might not believe it, there were a lot of drug trafficking cases actually got busted because of these huge amount of cash. There was this crazy case in Shanxi Province. You can see from the map that it is an inland province, where they busted two drug traffickers who were sleeping on the bed with a whopping forty million Chinese yuan cash. Well, the coastal drug lords didn't need to go through these many troubles with cash, so they were less obsessed with the cash use. In coastal areas, there are many overseas Chinese. So among these overseas Chinese people, there were some particularly shady individuals running underground banks. Therefore, the dirty money earned from drug trafficking in mainland China, after several transactions, can easily transform into clean money through these various sizes of underground banks. Chen Bingxi's smooth operation in the drug trade owes much to the convenience provided by these. Many underground banks. Compared to the inlanders, he could avoid the difficulty of money laundering. So, in a short amount of time, he quickly became the biggest drug lord in his local area. But for Chen Bingxi, with an insatiable desire for wealth, why settle for just being the richest man in the city? He aimed to become the kingpin of Guangdong Province and expand its reach. To Hong Kong, Macau, Taiwan, and even the Chinese communities in these southeastern Asian areas. All right. So when it comes to opiate drugs, China had never really been a hotspot for production, which is rare, knowing that we made everything. The majority of heroin actually came from the Golden Triangle. With some of it originating from um Afghanistan, heroin is classified into different grades one to four depending on its purity. And since 1980s, most of the heroin coming from the Golden Triangle has been grade four heroin. 
Now let's talk about Chen Bingxin. His main gig was actually distribution, not production. During this period, he got to know another major drug lord from the same hometown, which led him to meet Tan Xiaolin. Tan Xiaolin was also a prominent figure in China's anti-drug history. Originally from Sichuan Province, China, he later immigrated to Myanmar and became a major drug lord active in the Golden Triangle. His history even involves Olivia Young from the Golden Triangle, and my goodness, another famous historical figure from Southeast Asia. I think when Umbrella prepares, I can share the legendary story of this Burmese empress, Olivia Young. Perhaps I can mention Tan Xiaolin while at it. Anyway, after the mid nineties, the drug market slowly underwent changes. Although opiates represented by heroin grew rapidly, ephedrine-based drugs led by crystal meth became increasingly, increasingly trended at an even higher growth rate. Tan Bingxi's sales over the fourth grade of ice actually sourced from someone else, and it had been transported from elsewhere, which itself carried much risks. An instant or loss of goods meant heads would roll. Additionally, Chen Bingxi always felt that the profits from drug trafficking were not the highest he could achieve. Just like selling products on the internet, businessmen want to replace intermediaries and pocket all the profits in the process of selling products. So it's evident that Chen Bingxi and his major drug lord friends began to contemplate how to produce drugs. In Liu Zhaohua's story, I mentioned that in 1998. During a dinner hosted by Chen Bingxi, Liu Zhaohua casually talked about his skills in manufacturing drugs, catching the attention of Chen Bingxi. So, in April of that year, at Chen Bingxi's place in Puning City, he invited Liu Zhaohua over. The reason was simple: Chen Bingxi had long been planning to double in drug production, but his skills were too poor, and he. Couldn't get it right. The raw material for manufacturing drugs was ephedrine. Chen Bingxi, Tan Xiaolin, and other drug lord friends brought in a so-called drug manufacturing expert and spent a long time trying, but only managed to produce a lump of ice-like substance. They couldn't crystallize and obtain a yellowish turbid precipitate. Chen Bingxi asked Liu Zhaohua for help in refining. The math. Of course, we all know that Liu Zhaohua was a top-notch math chef, so he suggested to check out the blueprints of making the products. Right. However, the drug master hired by Chen Bingxi at the time didn't really want to share with the Liu Zhaohua about his blueprints. He was quite pretentious and seemed to have a feeling of holding back. Only after Chen Bingxi, Han Xiaolin, and other bosses urged him. Did he slowly take out those blueprints? Liu Zhaohua disregarded the feelings of that drug master, quickly pointing out errors in his、um, solutions. Of course, Chen Bingxi and the other bosses at the middle. Of course, Chen Bingxi and other bosses at the middlemen didn't really understand what was going on, but nodded frequently at Liu Zhaohua's、um, speech. Soon 
under Liu Zhaohua's guidance, Chen Bingxi and the others spent several nights refining nearly 500 kilograms of crystal meth. After refining, the meth they got was having a purity of about 85 percent, and Liu Zhaohua didn't take a penny from Chen Bingxi. What a guy! For Liu Zhaohua, he wasn't interested in this number four deal, and at the same time, he looked down on the technology of using ephedrine to make crystal meth. After all, being the smart cookie he was, he ditched this particular substance and found some other replacement to make meth in just one step. Moreover, the meth produced by his special formula looked clear and frosty, pretty impressive. Well, if you're interested, you can check out his story on my this video. So basically, with the help of Liu Zhaohua, Chen Bingxi could finally sell their own meth. You know, being the source. But like I mentioned, there was this the other dude, Tan Xiaolin, being also a very huge drug trafficker, right? Chen Bingxi at the time was merely the king of his own hometown, nowhere near the king of the Golden Triangle. Tan Xiaolin at the time. Then why Liu Zhaohua chose to work with Chen Bingxi rather than this Tan Xiaolin? Well, I think the biggest problem is that Tan Xiaolin was based in Myanmar, and Liu Zhaohua refused to go to Myanmar for a few reasons. Well, first he looked down on the number four heroin and crystal meth that made from ephedrine. And the second is that Liu Zhaohua thought the risk of manufacturing drugs in Myanmar was higher. You know, they had just too many gunfire there. And Liu Zhaohua was a guy who disapproved of gun use in big time because he believed those things didn't provide safety but only added more risks, especially in the drug making industry. Three, even though the terms Chen Bingxi offered were a bit less favorable. Because you know he owned only a smaller region, but he's willing to split profits fifty-fifty with Liu Zhaohua. At that time, Chen Bingxi had already established an extensive underground drug distribution network connecting Guangdong Province to Hong Kong, Macau, Taiwan, Southeast Asia, and other regions. For Liu Zhaohua, these were tangible assets that spoke volumes. After the official collaboration kicked off. Liu Zhaohua suggested that Chen Bingxi ditch the garbage technique of making ice using ephedrine. It was not only expensive, and the raw materials was, you know, hard to buy in China because it was under Chinese regulations. Instead, they could use Liu Zhaohua's invented method, which had significantly lower risks and costs, about fifty times cheaper. Chen Bingxi. Readily agreed, and their joint venture took shape. Liu Zhaohua was in charge of sourcing raw materials, equipment production, and the transportation between the factories and the warehouse. While Chen Bingxi handled the finances, selected factory locations, and managed the sales. Each played to their strengths. The first factory they collaborated on was located in a factory owned. By Chen Bingxi's relatives, Chen Bingxi obviously wanted to keep everything in the house. Remember how I said about this clan system there. Therefore, Chen Bingxi paid 
substantial rent to his relative, and also shelled out several million Chinese yuan from the 1990s to provide Liu Zhaohua with funds for purchasing raw materials and equipment. Once the drug manufacturing equipment was in place, Chen Bingxi publicly claimed that his factory was producing a kind of anti-cancer health supplement. Additionally, he hired a considerable number of laborers for the factory, most of whom had personal connections with him. And you know, in many chemical factories, due to security concerns, they would remove labels from raw materials. Leaving only codes, workers just needed to strictly and mechanically follow instructions to complete their tasks. So Chen Bingxi never worried about these workers leaking information. Apart from Chen Bingxi and Liu Zhaohua, not even his relatives, you know, the landlord of the factory, knew that they were involved in drug manufacturing. So their first child of producing went smoothly. With Liu Zhaohua personally giving it a shot, and the resulting ice surpassed the previous batches made by Chen Bingxi and his crew in terms of purity and appearance. Chen Bingxi was thrilled after seeing the quality of this batch, signifying promising prospects of dominating the Southeast Asian drug market. However, when it came to mass production, everything seemed cursed, going unusually. Arrive. According to Liu Zhaohua, this new production process could easily yield one ton of high-purity ice each month. Yet, during the first attempt at bulk production, the entire factory just suddenly experienced a power outage. Upon inspection, it turned out that it was just a fuse that burned out. Although chemical equipment would consume a lot of energy. With the circuits and firing in place, it should have complied with electrical standards and not caused a fuss to blow, right? Moreover, Liu Zhaohua, being a genius who could devise his own drug production methods, wouldn't make such a rookie mistake in designing the factory, would he? And the first blown fuse could be considered an accident. Then having it happen again shortly after checking and replacing the fuse was quite unbelievable. The drug production factory frequently experienced power outages, significantly reducing their efficiency. While the power outage issue could be resolved by replacing fuses, there was another problem arose during the bulk production of the product. You know the inability of crystallization. Liu Zhaohua was not exactly an electrical engineer, but he was undoubtedly a chemical genius. And this problem literally hit the core of his research. So Liu Zhaohua initially thought the issue might stem from a particular step in the process. However, after observing various workers' operations and all the equipment seemed to be functioning well, he quickly discovered that someone was adding a considerable amount of water to the mixed solution at night, preventing the product from crystallizing. And it was only Liu Zhaohua and Chen Bingxi, and the original landlord, holds the key to the factory. No one else could access the factory at night. 
and it seemed implausible that Chen Bingxi would have any reason to cause the disruption. So you know, it's quite obvious that it was the landlord who did it. Later, when Liu Zhao was caught, the main interrogator found this situation peculiar. And ask Liu Zhaohua if the landlord was stealing the ice to sell, you know, so he was adding water to cover up the theft. Liu Zhaohua explained that stealing the ice was impossible as it hadn't crystallized at that point, and the solution contained a high concentration of hydrochloric acid, making it unlikely for the landlord to fish for it. Moreover, even if it did crystallize, retrieving it wouldn't be as simple as. People might think, so why would this person subsage this production process? During the interrogation of them all, much later, the Guangdong police discovered the answer that surprised everyone. Although the landlord had run a factory before, he was cunning in an almost unbelievable way. Chen Bingxi rented his factory, right? And he was paid with really. High rent, and this rental agreement was closely tied to production. So the landlord was worried that if they made the production too quickly, they would quit the renting. And if that happened, the landlord would lose his rental income. So <laughs> by subsiding the process with water, the landlord prolonged production, allowing him to continue receiving rent. For a more extended period, this unconventional manipulation of time for the sake of money was something neither Liu Zhaohua nor Chen Bingxi had ever anticipated, leaving even the police astonished. I mean, despite the difficulties encountered in the drug production at this particular factory, a considerable amount of meth was successfully produced. According to Liu Zhaohua, they managed to produce approximately one ton of meth there. Each time a batch of meth crystallized, Chen Bingxi would rush over to claim it. As per Liu Zhaohua, the high quality of the meth he produced could outshine other products in the market, making it highly popular. Coincidentally, during the period when Liu Zhaohua went to Fujian Province under his fake ID to arrange his marriage. Through his third wife, an incident occurred in this factory. A worker accidentally spilling the acidic raw material, contaminated water flowed into the fish ponds, causing the death of fish owned by the villagers. Remember how I said about this clan system that worked there in the region. The damage caused to the fish ponds, you know, these were owned by many other clan members. It put significant pressure on Chen Bingxi. The authoritative elders within this clan system approached him, expressing their concerns. So Liu Zhaohua and Chen Bingxi hurriedly moved the equipment to a pesticide factory in Yinchuan City, Ningxia Province, to avoid further complications. Starting from October 1998, Liu Zhaohua moved the equipment to Yinchuan City, Ningxia Province. In November, they officially began manufacturing drugs there. The personnel in the Yinchuan factory were divided into three groups: one led by Chen Bingxi's subordinate, 
mainly responsible for transportation and warehousing. Another group consisting of people from Liu Zhaohua's hometown, including members of his first and third wife's families, and the third group comprised ordinary workers who were unaware of the illegal activities. In October 1999, Liu Zhaohua had to temporarily hold drug production. The factory had remarkable production capacity. Capable of easily producing one ton per day if operated at full capacity, according to Liu Zhaohua, during this period he produced approximately thirty-one tons of meth. Now that the move, the production capacity was no longer an issue. The key challenge was actually whether they could effectively and safely sell the produced meth. Since the collaboration between Chen Bingxi and Liu Zhaohua. Liu Zhaohua received a total of 27 million Chinese yuan. Out of this, 11 million Chinese yuan covered the costs, and the remaining of 16 million yuan was given as profit in a profit-sharing agreement. According to Liu Zhaohua's estimation, Chen Bingxi still owed him at least 200 million Chinese yuan. While the figure at least count the digits if I ever seen it in my bank. The problem being, though, the business that rakes in these huge profits for them is extremely unethical. They are literally lying on a pile of dead bodies, counting coins. Their collaboration lasted for about a year before the law enforcement launched a crackdown. With the massive distribution of heroin, conflicts naturally arose between the big drug laws. Long story short, tensions emerged between Chen Bingxi and Tan Xiaoling, two major drug lords. So it turned into a game of reporting each other to the authorities, exposing the drug distribution network. The government, armed with the secretive network information, couldn't turn a blind eye. After Chen Bingxi's close associates were captured by the government, he had to inform Liu Zhaohua, and on the fourth of November, nineteen ninety-nine. During their last meeting, they parted ways. While during their farewell, despite being in a heavily wanted state, Chen Bingxi handed half of his twenty thousand Chinese yuan in cash to Liu Zhaohua without hesitation. At the same time, he gave Liu Zhaohua two SIM cards and a credit card-sized piece of hard paper with the numbers of thirteen phone cards on one side and a symbol with a set of numbers on the other side. Indicating an account in a Hong Kong bank where the money earned from drug trafficking was stored. Huh, what a nice man! The agreement was that if they ever had a chance to contact each other, they would discuss future plans. However, after that day, they never had the opportunity to meet freely again in the mortal world. Starting from the fourth of November, nineteen ninety-nine, the police engaged in a four-year-long showdown with Chen Bingxi. The prolonged pursuit was attributed to the initial misjudgment by the Guangdong police. After the first failed pursuit, Guangdong police persisted in their belief that Chen Bingxi was hiding within China. Their judgment was based on several factors. 
Firstly, Chen Bingxi didn't speak foreign languages, and he was ill at the time, and his wife also went missing simultaneously. The wife, besides not speaking any foreign languages, she wasn't even fluent in Mandarin. Secondly, Chen Bingxi fled hastily, and the police quickly froze all of his related bank accounts. So if they were to escape, they would need help from people around them. Otherwise, they wouldn't have money to sustain their livelihood. Thirdly, several key figures in Chen Bingxi's drug trafficking network were already in custody, making it difficult for him to seek help within the drug trafficking circles. Right? However, in reality, upon realizing that their crimes were exposed, Chen Bingxi quickly obtained a small sum of money through an underground money exchange. And within a short period, both he and his wife acquired fake passports. Well, since they were holding fake IDs, they didn't dare take popular routes like going to Hong Kong or Macau. Instead, they chose to cross the border from Guangxi Province into Vietnam and then escape to Bangkok, Thailand. Well, I think that's why we have installed these facial recognition machines in border counties now. To prevent criminals from crossing the borders, upon settling in Bangkok, Chen Bingxi ran out of cash, and since he thought he was framed by Tan Xiaolin, he gathered a group of trial bosses from Hong Kong, Thailand, Taiwan, and other places, traveled to Myanmar, and demanded compensation from Tan Xiaolin. When they've got the money. Chen Bingxi and his wife returned to Bangkok and cut almost all ties to their previous connections. They rented accommodation through Chinese newspapers and through the landlord. They made new acquaintances, forming a new circle of life. Chen Bingxi fled with only his wife because, as early as 1996, three years before he got exposed, he had fabricated the identities of his two children. Obtained Hong Kong citizenships for them, and after the case broke out, his son had already been taken to Hong Kong. While Chen Bingxi quietly lived in Thailand, the police were still desperately searching for his traces within China, even with detailed information on more than five thousand Puning people, you know, from the same village of Chen Bingxi. They couldn't find any effective leads, obviously, because he was not even in China. The pursuit seemed to have hit a standstill. Finally, after the arrest of Tan Xiaolin, the police gradually concluded that Chen Bingxi was in Thailand. And remember how I said that his fate was tied closely to this habit of his praying, living anonymous in Bangkok for many years. Chen Bingxi and his wife couldn't contact their family members. Right? They couldn't get in touch with their daughter, who hadn't escaped to Hong Kong last time they checked, and their son, who had illegally immigrated to Hong Kong. But they didn't know what happened to him afterwards. As parents, they naturally were very sick for their children, but nothing they could do really. And to seek this peace in mind. Chen Bingxi and his wife got to visit temples to burn incense and pray. They used aliases everywhere. Only in front of the Buddha, 
Chen Bingxi decided to leave behind his real name. As they say, Buddha don't help those without karma, let alone an extremely sinful drug lord. This signature left the police with the most crucial clue. After conducting a difficult investigation across thousands of temples, the police began a sweeping check in Bangkok's Chinese community. Soon, they discovered Chen Bingxi's exact hiding place, and the large dragnet was cast once again. Four years after the case erupted, on literally the same day, the fourth of November, only four years later, in two thousand and three, Chen Bingxi and his wife were apprehended in Thailand. On the day of the arrest, Chen Bingxi signed and said, "It's over. You and the heavens are helping me. My luck has run out." Exactly four years later. Well, here is this thing in Chinese culture that we people hated. The number four, as its pronunciation sounds like the word "die" in Chinese. On the Christmas Eve in 2006, the Guangzhou Intermediate People's Court sentenced Chen Bingxi to death in the first instance for manufacturing, selling, and transporting 12.36 tons of meth, participating in the sales of 108.85 kilograms of heroin, and the crime of illegally. Crossing the border, Chen Bingxi's wife was convicted of drug manufacturing and illegal border crossing, receiving a combined sentence of eleven and a half years. While Chen Bingxi, while aware of his own wrongdoing, became immediately emotional, seeing his wife got this sentence behind bars, so he decided to appeal. On the seventh of November, two thousand and eight. The Guangdong Provincial High People's Court made a second instance judgment, rejecting the appeal and upholding the original verdict, submitting it for approval to the Supreme Court in accordance with the law. On the ninth of January two thousand and nine, Chen Bingxi, known as the Underground Drug King and the King of Ice, was executed in Guangzhou City. Before facing the execution. Chen Bingxi met with his family. Unable to control his emotions, he repeatedly cautioned his children not to repeat the self-destructive path, no matter how difficult life might be. All right, so we've wrapped up Chen Bingxi's story. Now let me deliver on what I mentioned earlier in the video about. Illustrating the significant impact and cases that a clan system can cause. Five years after Chen Bingxi's execution, on the other side of the region where he grew up with, there was this shocking 2014 first village drug manufacturing case that made headlines worldwide. At the end of 2013, precisely on the 29th of December, the Guangdong police. Mobilized over three thousand officers to conduct a comprehensive operation against drug production in a village in the Lufeng City, Guangdong Province. In this operation, one hundred eighty-two people were arrested, nearly three tons of meth, and two hundred and sixty kilograms of ketamine were seized, along with twenty-three tons of other drug precursors. This village had a population of about. 
14,000, and it had over 20% of its residents involved in the production of meth. Shockingly, village officers led the drug production and served as the protective umbrella. The primary target included 14 party and government officers, with the village party secretary as the top priority. In this village of drug production, some villagers even possessed weapons like hand grenades and AK-47s and resorted to armed violence against law enforcement multiple times. Topping a fun fact, China is in no-gun zone across the board. So if we compare this village of drug making to Chen Bingxi and Liu Zhaohua's production of drugs, firstly, the shift from family and hometown ties in drug trafficking to clan-based operations. Trafficking drugs is a capital offense, and large-scale drug operations required a significant workforce, urging traffickers to involve people they trust, right? This naturally leads to the involvement of relatives or at least people from the same hometown for easier control and communications. Taking Chen Bingxi as an example, all of his associates are all from his own hometown. Many of them share distant or close family ties. Additionally, in this region, there is a strong emphasis on brotherhood, where if one member gets caught, they can admit to all the crimes allowing their accomplices to escape, ensuring the well-being of the arrested member's family. You know how this clan system works in crimes. The drug-producing village expanded its clan-based operation by incorporating family-style management, industrialized operations, and collaborating with local criminal forces for protection. Secondly, Chen Bingxi, along with Liu Zhaohua and the Yunnan border drug trafficking group, operated differently. This is evident from Liu Zhaohua moving his factory to Ningxia province. While Chen Bingxi was daring, his reliance was on this loyalty of the local Puning people and the characteristics of drug users. Essentially, they engaged in secretive drug production and trafficking. However, this village in Tok, on the other hand, had bribed many police officers to act as protectors with instances of drug deals even taking place in police cars. You know, they did it as openly as possible. And at the entrance of this particular village, they even put up a sign Coated strictly forbidden to dump and um, drug production waste. It's like a no littering sign you can see in public areas. In the past, when the police entered the village to make arrests, the villagers would lay spike stripes on the road, drop stones from upstairs, and even resist with lethal weapons like AK 47s, homemade grenades, and crossbows. If the capture of Chen Bingxi resembled a crime thriller, while well, this village played out like a comprehensive and three-dimensional anti-drug war movie. Thirdly, differences in the types and preparation methods of drugs. Looking solely from the perspective of drugs, 
Chen Bingxi and Liu Zhuanghua were involved in producing high-purity meth, known as the crystal meth. But the villagers' drug production mainly centered around various ephedrine-based drugs. You know, the most basic and original way of making drug, and precisely the way Liu Zhuanghua looked down that. Finally, in terms of production capacity, Chen Bingxi and Liu Zhuanghua's factory far surpassed this particular village. Even if you combine the production capacities of all the drug-producing villages in Lufeng, the city, you know, all together, they still couldn't match the production capacity of Chen Bingxi and Liu Zhuanghua's factory in Ningxia Province, the very last one they had before they were caught. I believe the situation in this village is quite perplex and somewhat frightening, but it ultimately resolves around the intricacies of the clan system. From officials to villagers, everyone's on board, manufacturing, selling the whole shebang. It ran for quite a while before finally getting wiped out. All right, I didn't plan on making a super long video, but. Yeah, I am talking for ages. Thanks for watching. So you can hit that like and subscribe buttons to show me some love and support. And I will see you in my next video. Bye. Happy holidays for many American viewers. As it's the editing me only realizing that it's about to past Thanksgiving today when I post my video.